Well, Freya, interest in this podcast continues. It's great to have another episode of Macquarie Street Matters. Yeah. Uh, and today we've got Jordan Lane, the new member for Rive. He's going to talk about some interesting policy ideas as well mm. as give him, uh, sorry, give us an idea of his background and, and, and sort of what's driven him towards politics. Yeah, totally. He's another one of our really cool up and coming young MPs, something that is it's little known that actually across the aisle that sort of young energy is not shared among all parties and it's the Liberal Party that's dominating in that space. So yeah, it's really good to hear from Jordan and he's definitely got a unique perspective and I think as well coming up and being mentored by Victor Dominello, who obviously was such a pioneer and an innovator in the New South Wales government, I think Jordan is going to bring a lot. I mean, I must say, it's really interesting, after 12 years in opposition, mm. Labor doesn't have anyone under the age of 35. They've got no young talent. They're, they're kind of almost yeah. stale before they've got into government. Well, it's baffling. I mean, I wonder if it's because people spent 12 years waiting for their turn, because, you know, we're in, they were in opposition, and so there were no opportunities. Um, and so you just have all these, like, old people that have held on for a decade. I don't know, but... but don't think that is going to appeal to voters but more importantly I don't know where they're going to get the new fresh ideas from. Let's go to Jordan and let's hear what he has to say. Well it's great to have as my special guest today Jordan Lane who's the member for Ride, the new member for Ride. Jordan's one of the six Liberal MPs under the age of 35 who, mm. who are now in the Parliament and Jordan tell us a bit about yourself. Well, thanks for having me, Alistair. This is very, very exciting. I'm, uh, I love a good podcast. Um, so I am very much a born and bred Ride local. I was born at Ride Hospital. I went to local schools. I've served on Ride Council. I was even the mayor for a little while um, over the course of the last year. And I was always attracted to um, politics because I think in our area in Ride, we had um, John Howard, who I noticed is on your wall somewhere here, as our local MP for a really long time. And so around the local, uh, like around community groups, the, the dinner table, people would talk about politics, not for any real reason other than because their local guy was always on the news every night. And I think that sparked a bit of an interest. Um, and so I got involved. But um, Can I ask you a question? Yeah. So it seems to me that the... So you were mayor before you yeah. sought pre-selection for the state seat of Ryde. Um, is that a big decision? Because obviously as a mayor... You are head of a large organisation. I, mm. I know there's perhaps questionable tenure there in, <laughs> yeah. in terms of... Um, is, I'm not sure... Your mayor is not directly elected, so there's... By the council. Yes, yeah, so yeah. there's uh, the councillors, you know, the, the factions and the, the yeah. voting patterns on yeah. council can ebb and flow. So there's no great, you know, sort of security mm. of being a mayor. But you are running an organisation. Was, was that a big decision to sort of step away from that and come into Parliament? Well, it's a good question. Um, there's no law against doing both. You can actually be a mayor and also serve in Parliament. I have a very, very long-term view, though, um, and a well-documented one, that mayors should not actually, not just occupy office, but even seek office. And I actually uh, resigned as the mayor uh, once I had been selected as the candidate. You can only be both for a couple of years, though, can't you? Yeah, I think you? it's 18 months or two years, yeah. depending, um, or, or the next election, whichever yeah. is sooner. Um, but it was a big decision insofar as, um, you know, it was, I love that role. Uh, we were achieving some really great things. We actually cut rates. We're the only council in Sydney to do that, um, you know, in what was a difficult time. 
we achieved a lot, um, but you know, when I when I took on this role, I thought it was incumbent upon me to be consistent with what I had said, but also I think to give community confidence that if you elected me to this role, I'd do this role and give it my all. Um, and look, I, I've, I've handed over to a great successor and I still work really cohesively. So the impact has been nominal, but yes, it was a big decision because it was um, unusual to be you know, under 30 and a mayor, but um, we did a lot of good stuff and I'm happy with that. And it was a hotly contested pre-selection Yep. You ultimately prevailed. Um, and then just tell us a bit about how you campaigned. Well, the campaign was very grassroots. Um, I spent a lot of time pounding the pavement, walking the streets, knocking on doors, um, trying to tap into all those community groups that um, I had built up relationships with over the years. I think what really characterised our campaign, though, was a real focus on sort of young professionals in our electorate. Um, in Ride, our largest demographic now is millennials. It's bigger than the boomers and the Gen X groups, you know, and it's something that is growing as well. Um, increasingly, they're migrants coming from overseas. They live in apartments. They're overwhelmingly university educated. It's not a cohort that I think political candidates or political parties typically speak to directly. Um, and we made a real conscious effort to do that. Um, and what were some of the messages that, or, or some of the issues that they were telling you that oh, you were talking about? I mean, housing, of course, affordability, a huge issue. Um, a lot of people who've moved to ride were seeking either a, if they had come from, you know, perhaps a, a lower socioeconomic community, they were looking for an aspirational step up. But many were coming because they couldn't afford where they had been living previously um, and were quite shocked when they got into the community that uh, even in, in, in Ryde, apartments were very expensive, houses were unaffordable. Um, and then that ties in really well with the age group of young professionals. They want to have families. They want to start thinking about kids or are having kids and then realising that things like making the school pick up and drop off was really hard, um, you know, balancing that with the, the rent or the mortgage was really hard, um, and if they're you know, trying to run a business, that those things are really hard. So it's a highly aspirational cohort just being constantly uh, hit with the challenges of modern society, modern economy, and so we spoke directly to those things, and, you know, it was an intellectual discussion, and I found the response was really good. Great. And, and um, in your wildest dreams... You presumably couldn't have thought that you would only win by 52 votes. 54 votes. <laughs> um, but I count every vote as it was that close. Um, no, but to be honest, I, I'm enormously um, humbled by the result. I, I thought I'd lost. On election night, you know, the ABC and others had essentially said the seat had been lost. Um, that was consistent with the swing across the rest of the state. Um, in the end, we did actually lose seats with bigger margins than Ride, so it wasn't inconceivable that, that Ride would go, especially since we had a retiring MP with Victor Dominello, who was very popular. Um, and so when... In fact, I was actually OK when I thought I'd lost. I thought I'd put a line in the sand and move on. The hardest part was when they started to count the votes and they came in good. Yeah. Because that put me back in the game. And so the anxiety and the stress sort of... Well, we were very that. happy. We weren't, I'm sure we you... weren't anxious at all. We, we were... We're, we're delighted. And and, um, and so then you won the ballot yep. on, the, on the, um, the, the initial count and then Labor challenged the result. Um, and and yes. how, did, how did you feel when you found out that the result was being challenged? <sighs> yeah, so they'd said that we'd won by 50 votes, actually. Um, and that's close, but, you know, when you're doing the count and you realise how they're breaking, it, it was... It was clear that we had we had won, but um, albeit by a small margin, it was a huge relief to get to that point. 
bearing in mind this was two weeks after the election when they'd said that we'd won. Um, to then be told, oh, no, we're going to make a challenge uh, because we think that there's... And the, the excuse was something like, oh, we think there was some missing votes in the in the informal pile. And we, we'd had teams of people scrutineering this for weeks now, and we, we didn't think that was accurate. But irrespective, it's their right to, to request the recount, and it was granted. Um, it was just sort of like another sort of hit, like, oh, God, we just got to keep keep waiting, keep waiting, how long does this go for? Um, and that actually extended, it took a whole another week before the recount was concluded and we, we got that final result uh, where we found those four extra votes. So someone jokingly said to me that in a day we got an 8% swing towards us. So, you know, I say, give me four years and we'll see what happens. So. Well, I was there at the recount with many other, yes. uh, many other Liberal volunteers uh, at one Saturday at Everly. Uh, yeah, at, at Everly. huge um, warehouse. I, I must say that the thing that I really took out of the recount was actually how accurate oh, yeah. um, the, the the initial count and the, and the check count, which which accompanies it, is actually um, oh, yeah. you know it, it, the the four votes uh, the the change in votes was very minor mm. overall and and more around actually interpretation. Um, of the uh, rulings rather than inaccuracy. Inaccuracy. Yeah, correct, correct. Um, so it was it was actually a good vindication of the actual system and the integrity yep. of our electoral system, particularly when you know in the U.S. presidential election there was all that controversy yes. over the integrity of the ballot. I think it was a great thing to actually be able to see mm. that there's integrity in our system. Uh, one of the reasons that our system has integrity is that unlike the United States, where there isn't a centralised commission like our New South Wales Electoral Commission yep. Yep. and our Australian Electoral Commission in the US, um, it, it, it devolves down into, I think, the particular state, the states and how yep. they manage the, the count and the system, and so there's no consistency yeah, yeah. across the nation. and. And because different political parties are in charge of different <laughs> state governments in the US, yeah. there's always this kind of feeling that there's, um, you know, and part of the issue was, you know, did the president try and wrongly influence uh, particular yeah. state governors yeah. and the like, which we don't get here. So yeah. that's, I think, an affirmation of our democracy. Oh, completely. I mean, we are hugely um, privileged. If you If you think about, no one would question whether the power or the government of the day would influence the outcomes of an election. We, we're very, very blessed in that respect. And I think, you know, we, we should hold on to this system as tightly as we can because it really is the best yeah. in the world. And I and I think you're right, 50-odd thousand votes cast and you're talking a net difference of four, um, that's a pretty, pretty, good, uh, pretty good support for that model. Now, before we move forward from... The, the, the 54 votes, sorry, I was two out, um, on the recount. Can I just go back a little bit in time in terms of your personal narrative? You grew up in Ryde and yeah. then you jumped to being mayor and being a councillor. What, what, what's in the middle there? So I, um, I mean, I had a really You went to school locally. Yeah, I went to school locally at uh, local public schools. I went to Marist College at Eastwood um, for high school and did all my high schooling there. Um, I went off to university having concluded school. I've sort of studied business and and, um, and that sort of thing at, at university. Um, I actually hated my undergrad study. I really didn't enjoy university. I had just started at that time 
um, in the workforce and so I was really jumping into my work. Um, there was a bit of politics in that too and I, I really wanted to do that and so I didn't get much out of university life. Having finished that degree though, um, I, I moved on to another role where um, it was really encouraged to continue to study and I considered going back and did go back and do a master's degree, which I loved. I found postgraduate study completely different. What was um, your master's in? Master's was also in business, um, but I really specialised in big infrastructure and transport. So um, how you fund things like um, you know, railways and airports and toll roads and that kind of stuff. And, um, and logistics and, and ports and all that. And it was really interesting. Um, I felt like I was there with people who wanted to be there. It wasn't mm. just an extension of yeah. you know, a school. high school. Yeah. Mm. And, um, and so that really inspired me actually to get into a sector where I could do some work in that space. So I, I got a job as a project manager working at a big consultancy, um, sort of consulting firm, and did a lot of work on infrastructure and transport projects. So things like um, stadiums, on metros, the airport, um, and even some really interesting things like water policy with the Murray-Darling Basin and stuff like that. Um, and so I worked there for quite a few years actually and all through COVID. And that was a hugely uh, great opportunity to work with businesses, with stakeholders, communities, government, um, and trying to really help clients you know, get good outcomes, especially with respect to stakeholder work. Um, I did that for a while and then I moved into the disability sector and I started working at this great organisation called Higher Up. And what they did was basically connect all via tech uh, channels, uh, people who needed support with disability with people that were prepared to offer support work. Um, really modern organisation and importantly they employed all their workers. The trend in so many of these gig industries is to uh, contract workers um, which means that often the people doing the work don't have things like um, you know great insurances, protections and super. Mm. Um, Higher Up took a real position on that so I did some work with government um, in trying to advocate for better conditions for people in gig work and, um, and also of course in disability. It was a really good opportunity um, which I suppose was unfortunately cut a little short with the, the election, which I... But an enormous organisation higher up. Yes, over 300 people in its head office, 20,000 around the country between clients and support workers. It's um, doing amazing work, you know, broadly through the NDIS. How did, you, how did you come to make that transition between infrastructure <laughs> on the one hand and then, um, you know, social infrastructure in the disability space on the other hand, that, that's a big yeah. jump. Well, I suppose the connection between the two was both roles had an enormous amount of government involvement. Right. And so with the background I had at this stage, I was the mayor, I had experience working in government. Um, there was a desire to have people who understood the structures of, of government and politics um, to provide advice and guidance and, and also who understood policy. You can attribute those sort of ways of thinking to any sort of, um, of policy. It's just yeah, it's the style and the understanding of, of what you're talking about. So it was very vastly different sectors, but similar concepts in terms of, you know, you want to work with the responsible minister and the key stakeholders in the sector, of course, the community that you affect, and, and, and you apply those principles across different sort of um, uh, topics and you, you can still get some good outcomes. Now, of course, as the member for RIDE, you succeed um, one of my favourite former colleagues uh, in Victor Dominello. Victor's been uh, a big mentor to you? Yes, yes. Um, I met Victor 
very, very long time ago, when I was still in school, actually. He offered me, funnily enough, a work experience opportunity. That's how a lot of this started. Um, I came and volunteered in his office a couple of days a week, um, and that put me on a path to working in politics, which is where I met all the networks that then eventually helped me bridge into the private sector. Um, but we always maintained really close working relationship in the community because I was a local resident, I was a councillor, mayor. We had a huge amount of reason to work together in the community. Um, and he's a proper reformer. And some of the stuff he did across the state was quite remarkable. But all of it started really from that local connection. And, and I remember doing campaigns with him to protect our local ice rinks and local footy fields, um, to you know, advocate for better planning systems in Ride. We had a really good partnership and an incredibly warm transition from, from him as the outgoing MP to me as the incoming. I, I know he gave you a lot of support, mm. um, um, both actual and, and, and probably moral. Yes. Um, but, um, you know, Victor, I, you know, Victor, I think, is, is someone that's really left an enormous amount behind for his time in Parliament. Mm. And the particular... Th thing for Di Victor is, is the digital economy that he was able to uh, develop in terms of government services and yeah. and where his contribution was particularly felt was all the work he had done in terms of digital delivery of government services yeah. prior to the uh, pandemic that was able to be enormously leveraged up yeah. so for example our QR codes check-ins that we had in New South Wales where the data went straight to the Department of Health. No other state in Australia had that. Mm. And the reason that they didn't have it... I mean, and the still don't. That's right. And it? the reason we did have it was because Victor had done so much of the work with, with the public service that when it needed to be scaled up... Mm. And, and this is the great thing about the digital economy, of course. You can scale things up rapidly. Yeah. Um, you know, um, I, I know that there were upgrades of servers and, 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 and capacity going on all the time and also the development of, of particular software. But it was quite extraordinary what Victor was able to achieve. Yeah, um, I think it really showed the community that government could be better and that you didn't have to just accept the whole, well, that's just how government is, that it could be customer-centric, it could be digitally advanced, and that it could embrace new ideas. I think that's the big criticism. People think government's rigid and isn't modern. Um, that is often the case. It's why it's got that reputation. But I think he kind of broke part of that down. And, and you know, Service New South Wales was a huge um, lifesaver, really, through COVID, and not just for its ability to digitise services, but to then go above and beyond that, dole out vouchers, ensure that people could check in easily, make sure that they knew if they'd been in contact with somebody who may have had COVID. There's huge advantages um, because there was a good system underlying it. So well, when, you, when you look at the service for New South Wales, both um, their, um, their permanent um, locations as well as their digital um, delivery, I mean, it is the best delivery of services of any government organisation in Australia, the federal government would be so much better off if it had anything remotely like Service for New South Wales and its digital platform. But on top of that, they're actually better. Service for New South Wales is actually better than many corporations yeah. in terms of their delivery of services. 
Yeah, Victor um, would tell this story about how you know it was always the case that government would go to the private sector and say, tell us how to be better, how do we be more efficient, how do we get better systems, how do we put customers at the centre. Uh, now it's reverse. A lot of private organisations come to government and say, how can we be like service? And I think that's a huge um, vote of confidence for the work that's being done and also a reflection on how the community have responded. I mean, I, I think that even the physical infrastructure when you walk into a service, even though so much is online, they've still got a physical footprint and it is not what you would expect from a government agency at all. It's, um, it's friendly, it's warm, it's engaging, very proactive um, and very integrated. You can really do a lot in the one place. Um, most people expect when you go to a government office to be told, you can only do this part here, then you've got to go over there for the next part. That's not how they work. And I think that's, that's to be honest, where society's been for some time. It's just most organisations haven't caught up, but Service New South Wales hasn't just caught up, it's got ahead of it. So and, and I power think to that, it. And I th also think this is a good demonstration of uh, the, the kind of life experience of coalition MPs mm. who haven't just been union organisers or stuck in the trade union movement. I mean, there was Victor. Uh, he had his own law firm, so he was a small business yep. owner. But he also, you know, many of the aspects of service for New South Wales delivery and digital government, um, you know, we, Victor and I have had many conversations over the years, but you can also see that his experience as a lawyer and understanding of evidence yes. and information and the management of information has really assisted him to make the contribution to public life that he has mm. through digital government. So it's, it's, it's an interesting example of, um, I believe, good people with real-world experience yeah. are able to make significant contributions to government. Well, I think this is a broader point as well around diversity. You alluded in your earlier remarks about me being one of the... a small number of coalition MPs under the age of, I think it was 35. Um, and I think, if I take that further, one of only two also coalition under 30. Um, Diversity cuts many ways. You've correctly highlighted professional diversity. I think that's hugely important, particularly in government when you're dealing with and making rules and regulations for all professions. But you know, diversity with respect to age and respect to culture and gender, all those things I think make for a far greater representative and decision-making body. And I do think, especially here in New South Wales, that we do have a better cut of diversity on our side than, than any other side. Well, I think some of the relevant mm. metrics, mm. we're the only party with anyone under the age of 35 and we've got six MPs yep. under the age of 35. Tick. We've got 42% of our party room that are female, yep. um, only slightly below the Labor Party with a quota system. We've, we've been able to achieve that without quotas. Yep. Um, so that's relevant diversity. I believe, as you say, we've got a good age spread yep. um, of, of life experience, uh, very important also. Mm. Um, we've got people with kids, without kids, and that's so right. on. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so uh, probably, you know, to be, to be honest, the area that I think the coalition needs to work on is probably its multicultural diversity. Yep. Um, we, we have a degree of diversity in terms of 
uh, European immigrants and their children, but we need to yeah. uh, be broader. I agree. I mean, uh, in, in right where I'm from, our local council, which, which I played a role in, in building, is highly, cultural, highly culturally diverse. And you can tell because we get a huge exposure to members of the community that you wouldn't otherwise get. Just in the Liberal side alone, we've got a mayor of Armenian background, a deputy mayor of Indian background, and then councillors of Korean, Chinese, Polish, and I suppose um, Australian background in the one team. That's just on the Liberal side. We're hitting all the big cohorts in the ride community. Our biggest cohorts uh, after, of course, people that are born here in Australia are people of Chinese, Korean, and Indian background, and they're all represented. And so those communities feel like they've got a seat at the table. And I agree, I think that that approach should be taken, whether it's at state parliament or federal parliament, um, because cultural diversity is only going to grow. More people want to live here and we want people to live here and make a contribution. Um, but if they're not being represented, then we are missing out. So I, I agree with you. I think there's work to do there. Um, but we get that by investing in those communities, going out, speaking to them, identifying talent and bringing them into what we do and making them feel welcome. And I think all of us as MPs and community leaders need to do that in our respective patches. I, I agree. And, and look, you don't necessarily... No one MP can reflect the totality yeah. of their electorate. Uh, the question is um, engagement mm. um, and, and, and being uh, willing to, to get around all the different communities within your electorate yeah. is, is incredibly important. Now, um, uh, I got to meet your father on the recount there at Everly. Oh, um, yes. Oh, dear. What did um, he um, No, I was just going to make the point that um, I think your father was a small business owner. Yes. So you've got that kind yes. of uh, in your blood. Yes. Um, and you understand what it's like to have your house on the line, securing your business undertakings mm. and the like? Yeah, my, my, both my parents were small business people. So my dad was a plumber, is a plumber, and um, and grew up, um, you know, very much just trying to get ahead. And, and, you know, I think created his own business, has been doing that now for a number of decades, and um, worked hard. Like, not just hard in the sense that everyone works hard, but physically worked mm. hard and, you know, would take me on jobs as a kid. And, and a lot of his doing that was to try and actually encourage me to choose a different path. A lot of kids grow up wanting to be like their parents and I think he really didn't want me to follow in his shoes. He wanted me to go to university to study, um, to, to try and do something else. I, I make this joke that I often wonder if he regrets that intervention because arguably a career in plumbing, had I followed it, would have been clear, uh, cleaner than a career in politics, which is what <laughs> I've done. But um, taught me a lot about resilience, about hard work. And my mum was the same. She um, you know, grew up in a time where it wasn't encouraged for young women in particular to um, establish businesses. Uh, she did, uh, sort of home-based manufacturing business, selling merchandise and clothing and all sorts of things. And, um, and you know, as a kid, I grew up with both, packing boxes for mum, digging trenches with dad, and it taught me a lot. And I have a real deep respect for people who take those risks, who put the mortgage, the, the family you know, on the line to try and make a contribution. And I, um, we as government and as a society owe it to them to support them because they're doing, you know, they are literally doing God's work. It's very important. And many small business owners um, put so many hours into their business that they're actually mm. remunerated um, less than some of their Quite staff poorly, yes. on, on an yes. hourly basis. Yes. No uh, that That's one of the... Um, the the burdens of, of being a small business owner, you know, you have all that risk 
you have all the stress mm. Uh, mm. and the worry. Mm. Um, you can't just sort of bundy off at the end of the day and, and not worry about uh, about the business. Um, I agree with that. Look, um, you've had an enormously busy time since November, mm. or, or probably pre-November, yeah. pre the pre-selection. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you've gone straight into, you've gone from a pre-selection into a, into a heavily fought campaign, yeah. anxiety with regard to the closeness of the result. I don't miss that. And then, and then you're sworn into Parliament. Yep. And I think um, um, you've just recently given your inaugural speech. I was there. So I don't Thank think you. it. I don't think it. I know. I know it. Thank you. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Just walk us through, or tell us what that was like as as a as an occasion. Um, it was. Well, it's actually unlike most occasions I can describe. I've given plenty of speeches before in the context of my council career and in previous work at school even. But I think it really comes home for you when you stand there at the dispatch box and you've got a gallery full of friends, family, supporters, um, you know, a, a, a parliament of colleagues, that it fully sinks in that you're, you're there. Um, you know, we've sat in the parliament for a couple of weeks voting on things, making small contributions, but I think to have the floor in that way and to be able to give that inaugural speech, that articulation of who you are, how you got there, why you're there and what you want to do um, is a a very humbling experience. I've actually, I've never cried or become emotional in a public address before, and I didn't in my inaugural address, but I got close. There are a few times where I, speaking particularly about my, my parents, my sisters, my partner, where I did feel a sense of, of emotion, which was quite unusual and, and unexpected. But I think that just goes to show the gravity of that moment, that it really comes home for you. The, the thing that stuck out for me, other than the content of your speech, mm was the smoothness of the delivery. Oh, um, it really came over as, as if you've, you've delivered many speeches. I must say, I didn't, I, I didn't, get, I, I didn't actually appreciate that you were getting quite emotional because you know, my recollection of the speech is how smoothly you were delivering it <laughs> so and how you, fluently you were delivering so I'll it. So I'll tell you a secret. Um, there were a few occasions where the audience applauded the people I was speaking about, my parents, my sisters, my partner... And thank God they did, because that gave me an opportunity to have a sip of water okay. and compose. But um, but I think had that not happened, yes, it may have been a little bit more, um, uh, yeah, less composed. Yeah. Now, and unless there's anything else about your inaugural speech in terms of its content you'd like to share with us, the one thing that I'd like to talk to you about is the policy idea that you yep. enunciated, which was the idea that our public particularly our public school system, uh, is not really fit for purpose in terms of the modern world and that the idea of it being essentially a 9 to 3.30 or thereabouts yep. exercise yep. doesn't match um, the two-income family of, of most yep. uh, family environments uh, and also the broader needs of the community. Do you, yep. do you want to just... Tell us about that. Yeah, so I described... I said that the great travesty of public policy would be if the school system of the 2050s looks the same as it did when it was established in the 1950s. Um, and in the 1950s, it was not necessary for both partners to work in a relationship uh, because you could easily sustain a household on a single income. Um, 
overwhelmingly at that time, women didn't work. That was just the way that things were. We've still got a foundation as a system that is just like it was back then, knocking off at three o'clock, and that, as we know, is a time where most modern workplaces work is still happening right up till five o'clock. So what happens at three o'clock? And, and I think this is where, unfortunately, a lot of those entrenched inequities that have been established over time continue to this day. A parent, and it is generally, it's not always, but it is generally the, the mothers either take time away from work or choose not to work in order to make that pick up and drop off work. Now, there's lots of arguments to be had around should we be fixing and modernising the workplace? I think we should be doing that as well. Um, but, you know, I wanted to talk about schools because I think there's a way to complement the schools and to be better supportive of working parents. And what I had suggested was that the school campus could remain open for longer, so to say 6pm, and you would essentially bring in external providers and community groups to provide a well-rounded set of extracurricular activities. So things like coding classes, maybe a language, dance, music, sport. And those families who wish to use the service, it wouldn't be compulsory, but those that wish to could have the kids stay back and be doing something constructive, whilst at the same time the parents are able to stay employed, attached to the workforce if they choose. Um, I wouldn't want teachers working any longer or harder. They do a great job as it is. So that's why I make the emphasis. It's all about those outside organisations, but using the great infrastructure that we've got at schools. You've got an internet connection. You've got potentially an oval, um, bubbles in the schoolyard. You've got stuff there. We should be using that if the kids don't have anywhere else to be. Because the other alternative is that you can enrol your student or your, your children in childcare or after school care. There's two problems with that. It's really expensive. Not everyone can afford it. And also, there's limited places. And I know in Ride, I've got families who just cannot get in. So this would be an alternative to that. Not compulsory, but it'd be an option um, and something that you know I think is worthy of considering. I'm not sure that we can afford not to. Otherwise, we're just going to continue to perpetuate these problems. Well, I think there's a number of aspects to the idea which, um, you know, and people will... I think what's great about this idea is that it's starting a conversation. Yeah. I mean, what's appropriate for a six-year-old is not going to be appropriate for a 17-year-old. Yeah. Um, but, but there are many precedents for what you were talking about. Mm. I, I have a number of elite private schools in my electorate, mm. and they do exactly what you're talking about. There you go. Um, many of them will uh, do a sports training at 7.30 in the morning and still be there at 8 o'clock at night. Mm. Um, they have... Uh, eating facilities for meals um, for the three meals of the day they have a hot now um, I think that is a model mm. that we can definitely aspire to mm. and it's it's something that in terms of dis some disadvantaged communities would actually be um, uh, far better than some of the uh, perhaps some of the welfare uh, that is that is provided the, the reality is that for some lower economic um, groups, school is actually the safest, most supportive environment that those kids have. Yeah. yeah. That may not be our experience, but, you know, as a former family and community services minister, I can tell you that, that school, uh, for some kids, is an oasis in what is otherwise yeah. a difficult life. So to actually augment... That whole of, and I think you raise a really good point about the infrastructure of our schools is underutilized. Mm. As you say, all of the pieces are there, 
Um, I think this is a really good idea. It's, it's um, you know, the governments are talking about, you know, subsidising um, all sorts of different child supports to get more uh, people in the workforce. I might add that uh, Australia has some of the lowest female work participation levels in the OECD. Yeah, right. Um, and that was all part of the coalition's policies of, um, you know, we had a suite of measures in terms of, um, uh, you know, child support yeah. and, and the like, um, pre-kindergarten, pre, pre universal pre-kindergarten, whole range of measures that would um, uh, um, support women to be in the workforce uh, to get those higher levels up. If you actually look at our low unemployment rate, one way in which we can meet some of the labour shortages is not to just pull people in in great numbers from overseas mm. and exacerbate our already difficult housing um, uh, um, situation, but actually to have more women work and to give them the supports. It seems to me that what you're talking about is exactly that. Yeah, look, I think it's about empowering people. And if people want to make the decision to go to work, of course we should support that. But if the school pick-up and drop-off is one of the impediments to that, then we'd be crazy not to look at it. And I think that's what it's all about, is empowering as many people who wish to be involved um, in the workforce to, to have that freedom and flexibility and, and to retain that independence. I think there's nothing worse than feeling like you have to make a choice out of necessity. You don't. It's not a real choice anymore. It's being something that you're being forced to do. Um, everyone wants to look after their kids and everyone wants to make sure they're picked up on time and looked after and cared for. Um, but it's terrible if you are feeling forced to forego things in your own life to make that happen. Um, and I think that's part of government's role is to recognise that and be creative about some solutions. This mightn't work for everybody, but I think there would be a lot of people who would really appreciate that added flexibility and take it up. And so we should be having that discussion. I'm glad we are. One of the really innovative um, educational delivery models that the um, coalition, New South Wales coalition government uh, has uh, trialled is actually in your electorate. In Meadowbank there, we actually have a huge primary school and high school together yep right next door to the Meadowbank TAFE yep. with the Meadowbank Institute of Applied Technology, which is a joint venture between um, UTS, Macquarie University yep. and TAFE, and, TAFE yep. and uh, Microsoft as a digital institute of applied technology. Do you know that we need 100,000 digital workers by the end of the decade? When we opened up the um, Institute of Applied Technology for enrolments in November of last year, by the time of the March election, we had over 30,000 enrolments. Wow. Um, so That's quite a dent. Well, it's, yeah. a great, it's a great example of if you build it, mm. people will come. Mm. And it seems to me that that precinct where you can go literally from kindergarten to tertiary education yep. and beyond, yep. um, you know, the, the sort of um, micro-credentials which Meadowbank TAFE, the Institute of Applied Technology, is providing is is um, you know could be post high school pre-degree or post degree uh, credentials in um, everything it, it's also got the best cyber security training facility in the whole of Australia I've seen it. it's very um, uh, amazingly so that could be a model and there could be a whole lot of 
um, the, the the kind of full day um, care for uh, for kids for for pre eighteen year olds that you were talking about obviously has to be developed in a safe way separate from the adults in the uh, in in the in the TAFE and the in the Institute of Applied Technology, but certainly when you get that scale between the the high school and the primary school, it's much more easy to deliver that sort of uh, outcome. Similarly, um, the Linfield Learning um, Hub, which is a which is a pre K to Year Twelve yep. school that okay. the coalition built on the old. Uh, UTS site in Linfield, mm. that's another example of this revolutionary type of teaching delivery, which I think would work well with what you are saying. Now, Jordan, um, it's very important that new MPs not only bring ideas, but they continue to generate ideas. I think this has been great. It's really captured the imagination you've got a lot of media out of this so congratulations <laughs> Thank for you. speaking out and being able to generate new ideas it's been great to have you on the macquarie street matters podcast thanks very much for joining me today thank you for having me I'm grateful